Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. It's hour two of Mornings with Carmen here on the Faith Radio Network. I am Carmen LaBerge. Happy Valentine's Day. If anybody hasn't, uh, someone hasn't said that to you yet, happy Valentine's Day. Um, God is love and he loves you. He wrapped up his love in human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And um, it's not that God just so loves the world that he gave Jesus. God so loves you that he gave Jesus. And so... um, Receive, receive the good gift of God's love today in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Um, I want to talk uh, here this morning um, about what is happening uh, on the border of Pennsylvania and Ohio. So on February the 3rd, which is 11 days ago now, a train derailed in East Palatine, Ohio. And you say to yourself, well, you know, train derailments happen a fair uh, you know, with fair frequency in the United States, most of these are, um, and this one was too, you know, they're not passenger trains. These are, um, you know, these are commercial freight trains. Well, um, and you say it's kind of a rural area anyway. I mean, you know, 30 miles south of Youngstown, Ohio, an hour north of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, well, in this case, the train that was derailed, um, five cars specifically, uh, it's about what they were carrying, and it's about what has happened in the days following um, that makes this not just an environmental catastrophe, but potentially, um, I mean, a, a, an event that's much larger than what is maybe being actively reported. And so um, we're basically talking about the border of Pennsylvania and Ohio, and we're talking about what's potentially a major eco- ecological and biohazardous event for human beings and uh, and wildlife in the region. And potentially the, like, the the water supply like when you talk about something being an hour north of Pittsburgh you know you're talking about three rivers right so um a fire a huge fire erupted from the derailment that sent this billowing smoke up into the sky the pictures of it that you can see on social media are really extraordinary um and we're talking about something that didn't just happen yesterday like this is an ongoing event um people on both sides of the Ohio-Pennsylvania border were ordered to evacuate. Um, Fears were raised, right, about uh, an explosion. Um, And so they started what's called a controlled release of the toxic materials from these five train cars. Um, They started that on February the 6th. Contents were diverted to a trench and then burned off. Um, On February 6th, uh, Governor DeWine extended the evacuation order to include anyone in a one or two mile area surrounding East Palatine. Um, That included parts of both Ohio and Pennsylvania. On the 8th, um, the governor's office said residents were permitted to return home. Um, That was because the the FDA or the EPA, excuse me, (laughs) wrong governmental organization, the EPA 
had been um, testing the air and they said the air quality samples uh, contaminants fell below levels of concern. Well, on February 10th, um, the EPA um, reported that, um, hey, actually 20 of those cars um, on that train, in that train, were carrying hazardous materials, even though the train was labeled as not carrying hazardous materials. And so these chemicals included vinyl chloride. So there's a whole long list of chemicals that were on board the train, but the vinyl chloride is the one that has people the most concerned. Um, And so even though the EPA continues to monitor the air and continues to test levels inside homes in the region, um, and they say that they have not detected vinyl chloride nor hydrogen chloride or um, or hydrochloric acid, which let me just tell you how this all happens. And I had to do a little research because you know me, I am not, science is not my area of expertise and certainly not chemistry. But this chemical that was on board, this vinyl chloride, now, by the way, spewed out into the atmosphere, um, it's highly flammable and it's toxic. It is shipped in liquid form because that's what that's the way that it's most stable. And OSHA says that you can only be exposed to one part per million of vinyl chloride per eight hour shift if you are working in in a plant that's dealing with this particular chemical. Um, and so we're talking about a huge amount of this um, particular chemical released into um, it released into the open because each of these five tanker cars would have been carrying something like 200 to 250,000 pounds of vinyl chloride each. So I don't know, a million, a million pounds um, spilling out into the ground um, and uh, escaping into the air. And then, and then, you know, through this thing, they're calling a controlled burn being burned up. Well, here's, um, here's the problem with that. Um, vinyl chloride, when it burns, um, is this byproduct of hydrogen chloride. Well, hydrogen chloride is unstable and therefore latches onto water, any particle of water it can find, water in the ground, water in the air. And then hydrogen chloride, once it's latched onto water, becomes hydrochloric acid. So as they are burning off the vinyl chloride... Um, what is being ultimately produced is acid, um, which is now floating around in the air, obviously, in an uncontrolled space. And so that's what people are smelling. When the people in the region are reported smelling things and burning in their eyes and throats and dead fish in the streams and cattle dying in the fields, um, yeah, uh, apparently, you know, breathing what they're breathing, yeah, you know, at it, it some level is is toxic. It's painful. It's uh, it's maybe more than an irritant. So um, the Ohio uh, Environmental Protection Agency is working on an assessment for a remediation plan. Um, and they have gone ahead and admitted that it's impossible in most environmental spills. This is a quote. With most environmental spills... It is difficult to determine the exact amount of material that has been released into the air, water, and soil. And so they're just recognizing now that the assessment phase is going to take a long period of time um, to determine the not only environmental but human impacts. So lift this up in your prayers. If you have people in the region and you want to offer them a place to come and stay for a while, that might not be a bad idea. Um, So help's going to have to come from the outside for the people of East Palatine, 
Ohio and uh, and and beyond. Dr. Brett Nix is going to join us next from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. We're going to talk about what doctors um, are experiencing um, as they respond to what is happening in Turkey and Syria. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Doctor, my eyes have seen the years and the slow parade of Dr. Brett Nix is joining us from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. You can find him at brettnixmd.com. Brett, welcome back. Good morning, Carmen, and happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Okay, um, I, this is kind of a, an, an emergency room question and one that is happening in what I will call field medicine now. Um, Samaritan's Purse doctors and others have surged into the region affected by the earthquake in um, southern yeah. Turkey and northeastern Syria. What what would such a medical missionary see um, and what kind of work would they be doing? Yeah. And so for those who have been following this, I mean, think about this about a week ago, uh, 7.8, 7.5 magnitude quakes just devastating that area around Antioch. Uh, we know at this point about 20,000 dead in the, the greater city of about 400,000. Samaritan's Purse sent over their 52-bed field hospital. And keep in mind, you know, the natural disaster is one thing, but the subsequent trauma that uh, occurs, especially there, this is wintertime. Uh, we've seen footage with snow on the ground. Recognize that when something like this happens, the infrastructure of the area uh, is very, very limited. That means limited power, limited water. And so when you start looking at this, not only do you have the normal limitations that the healthcare system will navigate during perhaps the winter months, which we've seen here with all of our viruses and everything else, but now you add into it uh, limited heat exposure. Uh, so people, of course, going to have um, exposure-related illnesses uh, that we see with hypothermia. Uh, those that have limited access to now their healthcare, uh, if the pharmacies and things like that can't be open, obviously having uh, down toward processes. And just think about the normal things we see uh, for those that may have uh, diabetes and need medications for those that may have underlying lung issues that require electricity in their homes that they may not have any longer uh, to assist that. And then again, whenever we have a devastation like this, we think about water capacity. And if the water is tainted, the lines have been tainted, then you're looking at gastrointestinal ailments. And so you take all of this concurrent with the normal medical challenges uh, and the situation, not just to mention the trauma uh, that people are suffering uh, with the loss and the devastation that follows. Uh, these are the kind of things that all of those that are there with Samaritan's Purse and those that have responded to this disaster are addressing the basics, the food, the water, the shelter, security, the warmth, and most importantly, the hope of somebody being there who can provide services. Yeah, this is one of those um, help has to come from the outside um, opportunities. And I think it's a, you know, it's a gospel expression to go where people need help and um, and to serve as physicians in the spirit of the great physician and, and all of those good things. So I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about that. Um, hey, Brett, when we um, come back, will you help us understand what is happening with kids across the country here in the United States of America who are, quote, trans-identified um, and and there's some whistleblowing going on, and there's a case, particularly in Missouri, um, where the attorney general has called for a moratorium on puberty blockers for children um, because of uh, of reports there. Can we talk about all of that next? Yeah, let's jump into that and uh, open up the discussion and uh, try to make some sense of what's going on. 
Okay, that'll be great. We're talking with Dr. Brett Nix from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. How are you preparing for the reality of Jesus's last days, his passion, Holy Week, the Last Supper, the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas's betrayal, Peter's denials, Jesus being stripped and humiliated by soldiers and falsely accused by the Jews and subjected to mock trials and ultimately crucified? How are you planning to give those events in Jesus's life the attention they deserve. That's what the season of Lent is all about. The 40 days prior to Easter are set aside to prepare ourselves to face the reality of the cross and, yes, ultimately to celebrate the reality of the empty tomb. I invite you to join us in reading through the Bible together during Lent. The study will provide a way for you to intentionally engage each day with the Word of God. You can sign up today at MyFaithRadio.com as we read through the Bible together this Lent. I will trust Continuing our conversation with Dr. Brett Nix from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. You can find them at cmda.org. If you're a medical or dental professional, I encourage you to not only check out the resources that are available at cmda.org, but become a part of um, of that fellowship of believers. Um, Brett, let's talk about Jamie Reed. Who is Jamie Reed, and why um, Why are the things that she is saying like leading to a bigger conversation in terms of the way um, doctors and others are treating trans-identified kids? Yeah, you know, so for those who've been watching the information that's really come out over the last week, concerns, again, have been raised regarding the ethical and uh, ethical practices and the impact of these hormonal medications that some people use the term puberty blockers for children with this gender identification or gender dysphoria challenge. You know, the most recent concern uh, and allegations came from an employee by the name of Jamie Reed, uh, who has worked for many years at the St. Louis Children's Hospital, specifically in this area, um, assisting those that have you know transgender uh, concerns, identities or otherwise. And, you know, for her believing that she was there to actually help the process uh, and to ensure that uh, that she was part- participating in something that she believed in, um, you know, during this time of uh, of her uh, her efforts in that space, uh, it became clear to her that what she had seen probably was not exactly what she thought. Um, and she raised this up, and this is specifically from an affidavit that um, she had said that you know, in, in her assumptions and her uh, ascertaining watching the process of things that the center participated specifically in processes that quite possibly sterilized hundreds of children, uh, caused many children uh, to lead to further attempts of suicide, and in her assessment performed irreversible gender transition surgeries on minors many times, all while the the parents, the public, and, and others around were unaware of the processes that was ongoing. And she asked a simple question, which is this, which is, as she started to inquire further about those who had gone through a process or were exploring that and decided that they would like to revert to their uh, their biological gender, uh, that in her inquiries of those types of things was told that it was best for her not to further investigate or further have inquiry. Uh, and at which, at which time, you know, she felt that uh, her job was at risk um, as well and began looking at the information that was there and in doing so turned to the attorney general in this process uh, and at that point in time, as you stated as well, the attorney general for the state of Missouri called a halt on all puberty blocker uh, authorizations on children due to the affidavit and the information that she she ascribed. So I want to ask this question and I want you to think about this. And I guess this is really important for a lot of the listeners. Right. 
uh, when we look at medicine and we understand it, you want your physicians to act in an ethical manner. You want your physicians to provide the best evidence case basis for decision making uh, and most importantly, to do no harm. And when we look at the impact of these medications, for example, let's say a female starts taking testosterone, which is the hormone that is produced because of the male's genetic code. Uh, there's a profound and a permanent impact that can be seen relatively quickly within months. Obviously, the change in the voice, they can start having facial hair, uh, the body fat is redistributed more in a, in a male's pattern. Uh, but in addition, they become more aggressive. Testosterone naturally tendency has that with males. Uh, moods can change. And then, of course, you can look at issues as far as sterility. Um, and obviously, if you're anticipating potentially having children at a later state in time, these are all things that you would like to have described and disclosed. The challenge with this is when we look at developmental psychology, we all know that the brain is not fully developed until our age is oftentimes well beyond teenagers, especially the frontal lobe for higher decision making processes. And yet what we're seeing in many of these circumstances is patients and, and children that are far younger than this uh, that are in the process of making decisions that will impact the rest of their lives without good evidence of support uh, and without full clarity of what that may be. But again, also in, a, in an age and a state, many of them uh, struggling with underlying psychiatric issues, uh, making a qualified decision almost impossible, especially at that age. And so, you know, when we look at the issues that we bring forward with Jamie Reed and many of the other questions, uh, as, as a healthcare provider, as a physician, as a scientist myself, I ask myself, where are the studies on understanding uh, of the immature brain and, and when is the right decision-making process to be in place? You know, what are the, where are the studies on long-term impact of hormonal blockade when we're looking at it for these youth? Uh, and then we look at the long, are there studies that show the long-term impacts of this uh, with the social psychiatric challenges that we know? And when you look at the data that's out there, it's very, very limited. And you have to ask ourselves the question, are we doing harm? And you know, is this something, again, that we're going to look back in 10 or 20 years and say, goodness gracious, what were we thinking? The whole thing feels like a giant experiment. I mean, you ask where the long-term studies are. I feel like the guinea pigs are the kids that they are subjecting to these treatments today without saying to them, we, we don't actually know. We, we don't actually, well, some things we do know. This is going to render you unable to have children. Um, but as a kid, do you care? Like, do you see what I'm saying? Like, you're not thinking as a as a 12, 14, even 16 year old, you're not really thinking about whether or not when you're um, 25 or 30, you want to have kids. Um, but this is rendering you absolutely incapable of doing that. Um, and I also think that in terms of of this conversation taken to the theological, um, you know, taken into the theological arena, God created us to be fruitful and multiply, like to disrupt. Puberty blockers seem to me, Brett, like the like a fundamental disruption of the way God created things to work. Um, and not everybody has kids. I don't have my own biological children, so I'm not saying that, you know, um, if you don't have kids, like you, you're not a Christian, you can't be. I'm not saying any of that. What I am saying is God designed us to be fruitful and to reproduce like there there is a reason that um that's a part of the creation mandate and puberty blockers are a fundamental disruption of that like they're they're theologically contrary to the right to god's created order am i am i off or on track here 
No, you're completely on track. And I want people to think about this. I mean, the amazing creation that we have with every child that's birthed from the point of conception, that genetic code is unlocked. That's the creation that God has put in place. And many times what you'll hear is, you know, that people are assigned a gender at birth. Well, you're assigned a gender at the point of conception. You're assigned a gender when the genetic code from the mom and the genetic code from the dad come together and create this amazing thing that, that God has orchestrated. And what's fascinating through that is if you study the development just inside the mother's womb as the baby is developing, there are so many incredibly intricate things that are ongoing that are all driven by that genetic code. But that genetic code is oftentimes um, in that process driven by the specific sex hormone that is defined by that genetic code that defines men, defines women, and allows for the things that we see physically to be present. And we recognize that every single man is different and every single woman is different. But the beautiful thing about them is they are created distinctly unique, distinctly intentional by God. And so when we go in and we say, hey, there's this amazing, miraculous creation, and instead we're going to give a medication that tries to reverse this, you know, this incredible process and to make the assumption that a single medication can revert it to something different uh, and not cause significant uh, downstream uh, negative effects and perhaps effects that should never have been considered. Um, I think that we are, uh, we're placing ourselves far too ahead of um, the process of medicine. And again, like you said, uh, experiments in general should have a hypothesis. They should have a framework. And we have seen throughout history uh, that in medicine, when we don't do this correctly, ethically, uh, that we end up having uh, horrible episodes of things. And that's why we have the Geneva Convention. That's why we have the framework around uh, testing uh, so that we don't have uh, another Tuskegee type process that we have to go ahead and look back on uh, and, and address. And I think that if we're not careful, uh, we have to make sure that the same guardrails related to quality research, quality evidence, and asking the questions appropriately uh, are in place, regardless of what we're looking at in medicine. You know, as a physician, I take an oath to act ethically with every aspect of my patient care management and to follow the evidence-based care that's there. Um, and, you know, I just, I just ask myself these questions as well, is in these circumstances, is that what we're doing? It's so helpful, Brett. Um, thank you so much. You guys can connect directly with Dr. Brett Nix at brettnixmd.com. Also commend to you the Christian Medical and Dental Association, cmda.org. We'll put links to all of the things we talked about in the show notes for today's episode. Um, Brett, thank you so much. All right, Carmen. You too. Let's, uh, let's take a break for Breakpoint. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. He put that hunger in your heart. He put that fire in your soul. His love is the reason. All right, I want you to be uh, thinking today about the love languages of the people around you. Um, is it quality time, words of affirmation, physical touch, acts of service, gifts? Um, what What's the, uh, I might be missing one. Um, what's the love language? My mom's love language, definitely, definitely time. My sister, uh, words of affirmation and gifts. My husband, words of affirmation and physical touch. Me, acts of service. Like, what, what is your love language? Um, do the people who love you know that? Um, like, it's totally fine to just tell people. Like, hey, my love language is acts of service, so you don't really need to send me gifts. Um, 
And we also need to become really good at giving what other people value. We need to become good at giving what other people value. So I want to encourage you today on this Valentine's Day, um, as a person who has received the love of God in Christ Jesus, to freely give it, freely give it today. Like be a conduit today of the love of God into the lives of other people. Um, let God's love flow through you today. Um, everybody needs an experience of love. Um, for some people, that's going to be words of affirmation. For some, it's going to be time, like the ministry of presence. For other people, it's it's physical touch. It's a um, it's a hug. It's a handheld. Um, and for others, it's acts of service. So there you go. Um, just be thinking about that today. Marty Solomon is going to join us next. He is the author of Asking Better Questions of the Bible. It's a guide. Um, for the wounded, the wary, and those of us who are longing for more. How do you approach the scriptures? Um, how might you approach them differently to actually understand what God has said? We're going to talk ne- next uh, about rightly handling the word of truth. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. It gets so hard just trying to figure it out, fighting down, trying to believe. Marty Solomon is joining us now. Um, we all know that we're supposed to be reading the Bible. We just don't necessarily know how we're supposed to be reading the Bible or how we're supposed to let the Bible read us. Marty is going to help us dive into the Bible and ask better questions of the Bible. The book is Asking Better Questions of the Bible. Marty, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, thanks. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so... um. We all know we're supposed to read the Bible. Um, not everyone knows how to read the Bible. Um, how did we? How did you arrive at this particular place? Like, let, maybe we talk a little bit about how you got here um, in order to get us into the conversation about asking better questions of the Bible. Yeah, sure. Um, it was about twenty years ago. I was going through a lot of the same experiences that you know. I'm not sure all this stuff that we are talking about with deconstruction today is all that new of a Mm -hmm. thing. Uh, I think we might have some new awareness of it, new social consciousness surrounding it. But I went through my own journey about 20 years ago, realizing I was trained in the Bible, uh, trained to teach the Bible, pastoring a church, and really just had a ton of questions that uh, I wasn't totally satisfied that I had a good grasp on what those answers should be or that I was even approaching those questions the right way. So I I was kind of in this spin-out, this downward spiral and somebody handed me a different way of reading the Bible, a different, a different hermeneutic, we would have called it in Bible college, a different way of asking a different set of questions about the original author, the original audience. It set me on a journey that, I mean, ever since then, I've just been wanting to share those tools because they're not that difficult. You don't need a seminary degree. If you learn how to ask the right questions, it really helps bring a new posture to your your Bible reading, your Bible study, and that's what I wanted to give away. So I think, first of all, really good language there. Um, tools. These are. This is about having the right tools and um, and learning how to use them, right? And so it's not. Again, it's not about needing uh, a seminary degree. It's about recognizing that God has given His Word for all of us, and it's accessible to everyone. We just need the tools to be able to approach it in a way that builds confidence in us that what we're actually arriving at is the true meaning of what God has said. Um, Marty, that means that I am going to have to um, come to the Bible 
in a particular posture. Can you talk about like sort of like how we tend to arrive at Bible study and sort of all the things that we got to push out of the way in order to actually get into it? Yeah, absolutely. Like for the last hundred years, Christianity has postured itself as with a like with a stance of confidence. We've wanted to make sure that we we have a reason, we have an explanation, we can prove the age of apologetics. We, we have for a hundred years tried to make sure that we we know and we are the ambassadors of truth. And that's not all completely bad, but it has definitely postured us almost over the text. Like we we master the text, we understand the text, we use the text as a tool for what we're trying to say. And the Bible wasn't written for that. The Bible was written for us to be, for God to master us through it. Like it's a tool that God wants to use to shape us, to change us and to transform us. And so just being aware of what happens over the ages, what happens over the decades, how we come and approach the Bible and almost have this this temptation to want to use it rather than allow God to use it to change us. And that's gonna that's gonna do a whole lot to who we are as Christians in the world today. Okay, if you're listening right now and you're saying to yourself, I, I need that. I need help learning to approach scripture differently um, and to be equipped to rightly handle the word of God. Um, we're giving away copies today of Asking Better Questions of the Bible. And so you can text the word book to 877-933-2484 to enter that drawing. Um, again, uh, Marty Solomon is here with us now. The book is Asking Better Questions of the Bible. Um, talk with us about, I think let's start with context because <laughs> I I think context is king. Um, and as you move through um through this process, you start with seeing the text in context, and then you actually take us through um, uh, the different um, forms of literature in the Bible, uh, in the book, and I think that's really helpful as well. Talk, talk about the importance of context and the layers of that. Yeah. So, I like, when it comes to asking better questions of the Bible, like your first question or the foundational question is always going to be one that surrounds um, authorial intent or what some teachers or scholars would call communicative intent. And it's really this big idea of what does the author mean when the author writes this? And what does the author's original audience hear? What are the assumptions that they make? What is that conversation between the original author and audience? Which means the entire investigation is going to be an investigation surrounding context and the context of the scriptures. And so starting with those fundamental questions of what is the world that, what are the assumptions that they're bringing with them? What's the world that they're speaking to? What are the current events that they're wrestling with? And and what are the questions that I ask to get? And, and realizing that your Bible covers thousands of years worth of history. And so even the Bible itself shows up at different parts of history. So just knowing which part of the biblical library you're engaging, whether it's Paul's letters, the book of Psalms, or, you know, whatever, Torah, these are all different parts of history asking a particular set of questions and dealing with a, a particular contextual reality. So I have, um, I have a... 21st century um, American white female. Um, I mean, you could you could add a bunch of different things to that, right? Yep. Um, I yep. do not have a first century or pre-first century Middle Eastern mindset. Can you can you talk with me about how like how many lenses I have uh, that between me and the actual original text of scripture? 
Yeah, we have a lot. And like you gave a short list there and acknowledge that that list can just get longer and longer for each of us. Um, and, and it's a lot. It's a lot of lenses, at, not enough to induce panic, um, but enough to <laughs> right. recognize how how important those questions really are. So like right at the beginning of the book, we give just a short little crash course on everything from how uh, the Eastern person of the Bible understands truth versus a Western American or numbers or how we talk about eternal life. Uh, just different compartments of theology where the assumptions that they make are radically different from ours. And it can be as blatant and as simple as how they view numbers in a qualitative sense to how they understand God, not in an abstract way, but in a concrete way. I mean, when you and I talk about God, we use words like omniscient and omnipotent, and those things are beautiful, but they talk about God as a fortress. And those are both beautiful ways of talking about God, but they do completely different things. So making sure that we're having the Bible's conversation on its own terms is what's going to be key to helping us read the Bible for, you know, I think one author called it for all it's worth. And what a beautiful phrase we've been using ever since. Amen. Amen. Hey, we're going to continue our conversation with Marty Solomon in just a moment about asking better questions of the Bible. We are giving away copies today. If uh, if you want really good, positive equipping in how to approach the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. Um, Not that you would master God's Word, but that you would allow God to use the tool of Scripture to master you. Mm -hmm. This is is your book, Asking Better Questions of the Bible. Text the word book to 877-933-2484. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio, tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, Thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. Questions, wrestle with those questions. Lean into the session, shall listen. It's okay to have your- We're talking with Marty Solomon. He is a theologian, president, and director of Discipleship for Impact Campus Ministries, the creator and executive producer of the BEMA podcast, B-E-M-A. Actually, if you want really great resources that go further into the conversation we're having with Marty today, the BEMA podcast is a wonderful place to go. Um, you can also connect with him at martysolomon.com. The book we're discussing today, Asking Better Questions of the Bible. Um, Marty, um, talk with us about playing with both hands. Yeah, one of my favorite metaphors, um, This I, if anybody's ever engaged in the piano or even has a basic knowledge of what's happening on the piano, you've got these two hands you play the piano with. And your left hand, you're really laying down the bass, like there are these bass chords that serve as the, the foundational you know, the the foundation of the song on the bottom. But then you're playing your melody in the right hand uh, on the piano. It's really what brings the song all of its beauty and its fullness. But if you can imagine, say, tying your right hand behind your back and playing the piano with just the left hand and just those bass chords, unless somebody had some inside information, they're probably not even going to recognize the song that you're really playing. 
if you were to play the song in the right hand, they'd probably recognize it because they'd hear the melody. Um, but they the song might just sound a little off. Taking the Western and the Eastern perspectives, taking the world that you and I call home and the world that the Bible called home and putting them together really is bringing the fullness of the song together. The concern is when we don't read the Bible with that right-handed awareness, it's like playing the the, the song with only the left hand. The concern is that maybe we don't even recognize the song really truly for what it is. Now, we do have something to bring that brings fullness and beauty to the song and makes it something really special. But without awareness of what's going on with the melody, with that right hand of Scripture, the danger is we, 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 may, we may get it wrong at times. And that's, that, that could be something we want to avoid. Um, you have me thinking about um, Paul through Mediterranean eyes, and I can't remember the other the other complimentary book to that. Um, um, but it's, it's, a, it's about, you know, Jesus being Middle Eastern. Like I, you have me thinking here about other people in other, um, you know, in other parts of this conversation who have sought to take us into the conversation about context. Um, this is, you're not the first person to say these things, I think is maybe what I want to point out here. Um, but you're saying them in a way that people in, contemporary American culture um, can hear. Can you talk about the question of relevance when people disregard the scriptures because they don't think that they're relevant? Can you address that question? Yes. uh, And I really appreciate you wording it that way. I I occupy a really fun space that might be, that might be the one of the useful things in this book, because I'm not the expert. I mean, you're talking, you just talked about two works by Kenneth Bailey. Now there's Ken Bailey. There's a Uh, guy, right? That's a guy. There's a scholar. Um, I mean, those are the people you can quote in a paper. You can't really quote me in a, in a college (laughs) paper. I'm not going to be your expert in your source, but my book's going to be full of recommended resources, further reading. I love to direct traffic and, and point people towards the folks that they can read. Those are the folks that have changed my life. And if I can have a conversation that's just on this side of normal rather than scholarly, that helps bridge the gap. That's the space that I love to, I just love to occupy and and be in the middle of. But And that's kind of what makes it relevant. I think the beauty of the, the information age, social media, the internet, as it's closing a lot of these gaps of relevance where there was a group of people that knew there was the ivory tower scholars and i don't mean that in a derogatory way i just mean they they were they were over there doing their work and we're over here doing our work and you know the two don't seem to meet but we're starting to bridge those gaps a lot more a lot easier and and that's making these conversations we're realizing the relevance of reading the bible through you know mediterranean eyes we're realizing that that golly that that changes what I understand about Jesus, and that's important because I follow Jesus. So reading reading Jesus correctly, hearing his rabbinical teachings appropriately is unbelievably relevant, not just for some Bible professor or scholar, but for me as I sit in my own church or in my own home or in my own small group with my own family. I love that. Um, all right, I've just, uh, I've just tweeted it out in case you're um, in case you're looking for Marty Solomon and you follow me on Twitter, you ought to follow him as well. Um, the book is uh, is Asking Better Questions of the Bible, a guide for the wounded, wary, and longing for more. We are giving away copies today. You can text the word book to 
eight four. Marty, I think we are um, kindred spirits. I am certainly married to one of your kindred spirits for sure. This is a conversation we have at our house um, a lot in a lot of different um, in ways and forms. Um, I would uh, I would like for you to end where you take us actually in the book and just positively encourage people to commit to never stop devouring the word of God. Like this, this is a pursuit that never ends. Yeah, it's a pursuit that never ends, and it's a pursuit that never returns void. I mean, God tells us some of his words in Isaiah chapter 55, my words always accomplish their purpose and the desire for which I sent it. To put God's word in us is a task that's never going to be empty, because God's going to do something through the power of his spirit with those words. And if there's one thing that I started and end my journey with, it's my confidence in the person of Jesus and the beauty and the authority and the power of the scriptures. Like those two things aren't going to let us down. They're big enough to handle our questions and our doubts. And they've never, I mean, Jesus has never looked at any of my questions and shrugged it off or rolled his eyes. Uh, the Bible's always been big enough to handle it. And it's a beautiful thing. We're going to be, we're going to be just fine. I um I love that Jesus is um he's just always ready to answer the same question and he's been answering the same questions right for millennia um and yet when I come with him come to him with the same question again he doesn't he's not like you know I've I've answered this question before he doesn't he doesn't do that right that he just yep. helps me to open the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit and he illuminates my heart and my mind he masters me. And that is such a gift. That is such a beautiful gift. Marty, um, what a joy to um, to get to talk with you today. The book is excellent. I look forward to an ongoing conversation with you. You're easy to talk with. Um, and so we appreciate you being here today. want to also lift up the BEMA podcast. It'll all be in the show notes for today's show. Marty Solomon, thank you so much for joining us on Mornings with Carmen. Absolutely. Thank you very much as well. Yeah, absolutely. Asking better questions of the Bible. You can enter the drawing for the copies we're given to, giving away today. Text the word book to 877-933-2484. Love is patient. Love is kind. Never jealous. Free of pride. Love will... Ah, love. Love is a mini splendored thing, is it not? Um, On this Valentine's Day, I'm going to encourage you to be openly receptive to the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And if what you are experiencing is love as a many splintered thing, I get it. Um, You're not alone. Uh, And I want you to think of um, the one who hung upon a cross um, splinters and all as the ultimate expression of love. So how is love the many splintered thing demonstrated on a splintered cross? Whatever you're experiencing today in terms of the, um, the, the sort of like various expressions of love in the world and maybe the lack of love demonstrated toward you by others, You're not alone in that. Jesus was um, broken at a heart level in the same ways that our hearts are broken today. You are not abandoned and you are not forsaken. You are loved. You are loved in 
in a many splintered way, and you are loved from a many splintered cross. Let that sink in today as you turn in love toward the world that God so loves, where he sends you as an agent of his grace, an ambassador of his kingdom, that others might come to know the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. My hope today is that others would put their faith and hope in the God who is love. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.